Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Some people seem to suggest that if you are a deeply spiritual Christian, you will live on a spiritual mountaintop. God will constantly be blessing you, and you will not have any problems, or at least you won't have any problems like other people have problems. You ever heard a preacher talk like that? As if if you just were spiritual enough, it would solve all these problems you got? Well, I want to ask a very simple question. Is that true? What I really want us to do is look at the next episode in the life of Jacob. We've been tracing his life through the book of Genesis. We've seen him literally flee out of the land, spend 20 years in a foreign land, and then, after 20 years, come back. What we're looking at in the next episode is what happened after he got back into the land, after he had been there for some time, as a matter of fact. So will you look with me at Genesis chapter 35? In principle, all these things that happened to Jacob happened to believers. So this is a good illustration of what we have to look forward to. Let's begin with chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now let me pause for just a second. Uh, I said just a minute ago that Jacob had come back to the land, and he had. Only we know that he had gone to Shechem. So when we read verse 1, it's important to know where he's at. As a matter of fact, uh, this whole chapter is another travelogue. He goes from one place to the other, but he starts out at Shechem. And verse 1 says that God told him to go to Bethel. Now, he has been back in the land for 10 years, and he was supposed to go to Bethel before this, and he's at Shechem. And what really is interesting is that Shechem is 15 miles from Bethel. So in all this time, he needed to go back to Bethel, but he has camped and stayed at Shechem. So the Lord finally comes to him and says, I want you to go to Bethel, and I want you to build an altar there uh, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. That was the last place he saw God before he left the land, and made a vow that he would come back, and he's not paid that vow. And so the Lord appears to him and says, get out of Shechem and go to Bethel. Simple, pack up and travel 15 miles down the road. 
Verse 2, then Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away, this is incredible, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the days of my distress, and has been with me in the days uh, which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under an oak tree which was by Shechem. Now, the surprising thing in this story is that they've still got idols. Now, they weren't supposed to have idols. And if you remember a few chapters back, when they left the land they were in, Rachel had taken her father's idol, and uh, so maybe this is where that came from. Maybe some others had taken idols, plural. At any rate, we're going to go back to meet the Lord, and so what he tells us to do is get rid of all the idols. We're going to go back and worship the Lord. So what does that mean? Get rid of all this stuff that is idolatrous. Get rid of all this stuff of which God does not approve. And so they gave him the idols and the earrings, which probably had something to do with idolatry one way or another, but they gave it all up. Now, the story so far is really simple. Go to Bethel, build an altar to the Lord, but you're at Shechem. So get rid of the idols before you come to the altar. The book of Hebrews says that we are to run the race that is set before us, laying aside the sin and the weight that so easily besets us. That when you're going to have fellowship with the Lord, there are things you just need to throw out. Now, we think of idols as these little carved images and you bow down to them and we don't have those kinds of things in our houses so we don't think we're idolaters. But several passages in the New Testament seems to indicate that we all are. The passage in Colossians says, put away covetousness, which is idolatry. The little book of 1 John ends with Get rid of your idols. So apparently it's possible for believers to have idols. Maybe not little carved statues, but nevertheless, those things that we spend our time, energy, money on and put in the place of God. And if you're going to go back and worship the Lord, you're going to have to get rid of the idols. Or you're simply not going to grow. And that's the problem. You cannot serve God and mammon. You're either going to serve the Lord or you're going to serve these idols. So you've got to make a choice. Someone has illustrated this by saying it's like going up in a hot air balloon. Uh, I've never done that. But from what I understand, you've got to toss some of those uh, weights out. And the idea was the more you toss out, the higher the balloon goes. And that is the picture of spiritual growth. The more you get rid of these weights and sin that weighs you down, 
the higher you grow spiritually. So we're going to go build an altar to the Lord. And the first thing we have to do is we have to get rid of all this stuff. So let's pick up the story in verse 5. And they journeyed. And the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, that's an interesting little observation. I want you to back up and look at verse 3. Jacob said, let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the days of my distress and has been with me. So in the midst of this, in the midst of all of Jacob's bungling, and I don't know what else to call it, maybe just call it sin, yeah, he practiced deception and he had all kinds of problems, but God was faithful to him. And he says in verse 3, he answered me in the days of my distress. He's been with me all the way. God had been faithful to Jacob even when Jacob had not been faithful to God. And that's the point of verse 5. So as the Lord's still with them, and so the fear of God was upon the cities as they traveled. Uh, the people probably heard of some of the exploits of Simeon and Levi, which we saw in an earlier chapter, and they feared the Lord, meaning they didn't mess with Jacob and his entourage. Verse 6, and so they came to Luz, that is Bethel which is in the land of the Canaanites, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. El means God, and this, so this is the, the city of God, or God's city. Because God had appeared to him there when he fled from the face of his brother Esau. Now, this is the place where God had appeared to him. He had vowed to come back there when he came back to the land. And this verse is simply telling us that uh, he gets back there. And uh, verse 7 says, he built an altar there and he renamed the city in honor of the Lord. So we are told that he finally gets back to where he was supposed to be. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under that oak tree, so the name of it was called Alon Becca. In other words, we get there, and one of the things that happens is this uh, maid of Rebekah died. This has been called Jacob's nanny that she no doubt had a hand in raising him. So this was a sad day in his life. As a matter of fact, he renamed the place, and the name in Hebrew means the Oak of Weeping. So this was a sad day. Somebody he had known for a long, long time, somebody that was near and dear to him, died, and he had to bury her. So Deborah, the nurse, who nursed him, died. Then God appeared to Jacob, verse 9, again, and he came to Paradam Aaron and blessed him. And God said, 
Your name is Jacob. Your name shall be called Jacob no more, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Again, the Lord appears to Jacob. That alone is God's faithfulness to him. And this time he changes his name and henceforth you're going to be called Israel. Now listen to all these promises God reviews with him. Pick it up at verse 10. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Now, I want you just to underscore that great nations are going to come out of you. You see that in verse 11? Verse 12, the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob sat up a pillar in the place where he talked to him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. But what I want you to focus on in this part of the passage is two things. In verse 11, God said, you're going to be a nation, a company of nations shall proceed from you. Kings shall come from you, your body. And in verse 12, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. Now, this is a critical issue in the book of Genesis. If you've been following me as we've been going through this book, you've heard me say this before, but it needs to be repeated. And that is the, the seed plot of the book of Genesis, which becomes the seed plot of the whole Old Testament, and to some degree, the Bible, is that God appeared to Abraham and said to him, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you descendants as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. Remember all that? And you're going to multiply and become great throughout the earth. And I'm going to give you this land. Now, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And embedded in that is the idea that God would not only give all of that to Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob, but that it would include the Messiah as well. So this is the Abrahamic covenant, and the core of it is that God gives to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land of Israel and the promise that they're going to become a great nation. Nations are going to come out of them. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. What is interesting is that he gave them the land, and that little issue is disputed Till this day, one of the greatest problems politically in the earth right now is who owns the land of Palestine. Is it the Jews or is it the Arabs? They both claim it and they're both on it, various parts. And uh, 
It goes all, the Jews go all the way back to the book of Genesis and say, see, God gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It belongs to us. Well, that's the promise God made, and it is being reviewed and rehearsed and repeated here. That's the point. So again, Jacob, you've been a scoundrel, buddy. You haven't done everything you were supposed to do. Matter of fact, you've done some things you weren't supposed to do. But you know what? I made a promise, and I, the Lord, am going to keep that promise. So woven through this story, repeatedly, is the faithfulness of God. Jacob says, he's been with me. He's been with me in my distress. He's, been, uh, he's answered me. Uh, as they travel, the Lord put the fear of God in other people, so he protected them. And now he reviews the promise he made to Isaac and uh, Abraham and Jacob, saying, I'm going to keep this promise. I will be faithful to what I promised you I would do. So they uh, hear all of this at Bethel. Now, the text tells us in verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel. So the second phase of this story, I told you it was a travelogue, is we're now going someplace else. So we're leaving Bethel. And when they were a little bit distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she labored hard. Now, actually, as the story will indicate later, we're not told this at this point, they're leaving Bethel to go see his father, Isaac. He has not seen him in years, and they're going back to be reunited with Isaac. But on the way, Rachel is expecting, and she goes into labor. And it was hard labor. And this is one of those things that when men teach the Bible, they don't appreciate because we haven't had the experience. But I've heard women talk about the experience. Some labor is easy and some labor is hard. Well, at this point, this labor was not easy. It was hard. Verse 17, it came to pass when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you have this son also. And so it was that her soul departed from us, for she died, and she called his name Ben-Oni, for his father called him Benjamin. All right? She had a child. And in the process died. Verse 19 says she died and was buried on the way. That is near the city of Bethlehem. Now, she gave him one name, which means the son of my sorrow, because it was hard labor. But can you imagine being named that and all your life you're walking around, they say, what's your name? And you give them your name and it, they know it means sorrow. <laughs> So he changed his name to Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. I think this is a, an interesting little turn of events, 
The mother named him one thing and the father named him another. And he ends up with the name of the father. Do you, do you know any situation like that? Have you ever heard of a situation where the mother and father named a child by two different names? You ever heard of that? Or do they usually agree on the name, at least by the time the kid is born, right? You, you've heard of two, two people disagreeing? It happened to me. This, this almost identical thing. Uh, my father was from Greece, and there's a tradition in Greek, Greece that you name the son after the father. I mean, that's just assumed. You wouldn't think of doing otherwise. The son gets the father's name. But he married an American, and when she was a teenager, she saw a movie, and the hero of the movie was named Michael. Now, my father's name was George. So he called me George, and she called me Michael. And as she told me later, at one point when they got me home, she's calling me Michael, and he says to her, his name is not Michael, it's George, call him George. And she said, I filled out the birth certificate, you need to look at the birth certificate. And sure enough, my birth certificate says, George, a Michael. So uh, she won in that case, and uh, they got divorced when I was six, so I never got tagged with George. I always got tagged with Michael, and I've been Michael from that day to this. The only people that know me by George is the Social Security office. Uh, yeah, you got, they always go by the first name, and that gets on my insurance, and so, you know, I have to tell them, well, I'm George, but I go by Michael, you know, huh? You know, all right. But anyway, I read this, and I couldn't help but remember that this exact same thing happened yeah. <laughs> All right. But the, the, this, is, this is really fascinating. He gets a son and his wife dies. Now, what is, what is the birth of a son supposed to be? Joy, right? And what happens when your wife dies? Now, you remember the story of Jacob? Who died? Rachel. Now, he had other wives. He had another one named Leah. That was Rachel's sister. Remember that? Which one did he love the most? Rachel. Rachel. The Bible is very clear about that. Back in chapter 29, that uh, they had a problem with each other because uh, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And the Bible says that in those exact terms. So here he has a case where... Um, he gets another son, which, by the way, she prayed for, and she gets another son. And then his wife dies, and he ends up with another son. So the text tells us in verse 19, she died, she was buried on the way, and that is to where Isaac is, but the place where she got buried was Bethlehem. And verse 20, Jacob set a pillar on her grave, and which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Now, this book was written 400 years after she died. Moses wrote this 400 years later. So what he's saying is 
uh, you can go to Bethlehem 400 years later and you can see her tombstone. You can see her grave. That's the idea. But what struck me as I read this is the fact that Jacob has the greatest joy and perhaps the greatest sadness all at one time. I mean, what greater joy is there than to have a child? Isn't that one of the great moments of your life, especially if you've prayed for one? And what is sadder than to lose the one person you love more than anybody else? He loved Rachel dearly, and she dies, and she gets another son. Wow. I... Uh, I experience this frequently, not personally, but as a pastor. As a matter of fact, I never know when I'm coming to church on Sunday morning what I'm going to encounter. That, uh, matter of fact, Patricia and I sometimes talk about that as we're getting ready to come to church on Sunday morning. What will happen today? So, matter of fact, I wish I had written this one down. I didn't. But within the last couple of weeks, I remember a situation where within a span of three hours, I got good news and bad news. That it's that kind of thing. And on Sunday morning, somebody meets me and says, I got the job. Great. I've been praying for that. And the next person says to me, my cousin died. And the Bible tells me to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But that's life, isn't it? And it's particularly the life of a pastor. And, I mean, it happens all the time. I know of situations where pastors have refused to talk to people before the service. <laughs> that they deliberately, uh, in large churches, they're able to get away with this. They, they get up to the platform without talking to anybody, and they'll talk to everybody afterwards, but don't talk to me before I preach the sermon, because some of this stuff really gets to you emotionally. Now, I'm laboring this because I think this is an interesting point in this whole passage, that he gets blessed one minute, and he has a wife die the next. That's the story of this passage. All right, let's pick it up at verse 21. Then Isaac journeyed, and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Uh, that is probably a watchtower where shepherds built the tower and got up in it and could watch their flocks. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now, uh, we've encountered something like this before. And I'm teaching the book of Judges, and we've found something like this It's even worse. But imagine having your son commit adultery with one of your wives. Now, it says concubine, but remember, a concubine was a wife. She was a second-class citizen, so to speak, but she was a wife. And so the next thing he hears is that his son has committed adultery 
with one of his wives. Just imagine all the heartache that's going on in this man's life. What a heartbreak that would be. Enough to break your heart and then some. Now in this passage, it just says, into verse 22, and Isaac heard about it. That's all it says. Isaac heard about it. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He just heard about it. Nothing is said or done at this point. But stay tuned, because when we get to the end of the book, or toward the end of the book, something gets said about this. And it's very serious for Reuben. But at this point, it's just very, very bad news for Reuben. Now, the rest of the chapter tells us that they went on to Mamre, which is uh, Hebron. Verse 22 uh, says that when it happened, uh, when Israel dwelt in the land, and Reuben went in and lay with his father's concubine. I meant to read verse 23. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, and then it lists, down through verse 26, the 12 sons of Jacob. Verse 27, and finally, Jacob came to his father's house at Mamre. That is, he says, another name for Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem. So, this had to be one of the outstanding moments in his life. He's been gone at this point for 30 years. He was out of the land for 20. He came back to the land, but didn't see his father for 10. Then he finally, after 10 years back in the land, he goes to Bethel, and then he leaves Bethel, and they have some of these blessings and tragedies happen along the way. And he finally gets from Shechem to Bethel, and from Bethel through Bethlehem, back down to Hebron. And there he meets his father. That had to have been a moment of great joy and celebration. He was reunited with his father after 30 years of separation. Then the passage closes by telling us, Now the days of Isaac were 180, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Isaac and Jacob buried him. <laughs> you get this great reunion in verse uh, 27, and then we're told his father dies. Now, actually, his father doesn't die a little later. These didn't happen on top of each other, but the author seems fit to mention it here. So there again, there's great joy in one verse and an absolute tragedy for Jacob in the next. His father was 180 years old when he died. Now, that's a ripe old age. For them, it was probably about normal in that day. Uh, the ages decreased as you go through the Bible. But the text tells us that he was gathered to his people. Now, that's an interesting little phrase. 
It's the Old Testament way of saying that he died and went to be with Abraham and his relatives. We would say he went to heaven. He's with the Lord. But the Old Testament way of expressing that is he gathered to his people. So um, the New Testament teaches the same thing, that we will, when we die, are united, reunited with the Lord and all those that are in heaven with us. So that's what this passage is saying. The other significant thing is this. Look at the last verse in the chapter and the last sentence in the verse. He was buried and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Again, joy and sorrow all at the same time. They're both grieving the loss of their father. But do you remember what happened to these two brothers? I mean, Jacob deceived Esau to get the blessing and steal it from Esau. Did I say that right? Let me say it again. Uh, Jacob deceived Isaac to rob the blessing from Esau. And Esau threatened to kill him. That's why he left the land. And 30 years later, now they've actually reconciled before this, they both bury their father. So they were reconciled. What a joy on the day, the sad day, that they bury their father. So as I read this passage, I couldn't help but be struck by the fact that one day he's on the mountaintop, and the next day he's in the pits. So I'd sum it all up by saying, Jacob returned to Bethel to fulfill his vow. He was reassured of God's promises, which are incredible. Had another son, which is remarkable. And he saw his father before he died. Now, what great joy. Think about that. He's reassured of God's promises. God promised, I'm going to give you the land. Nothing of what you've done changes that. And I'm going to throw in another son. And uh, you're going to see your father before he dies. All great blessings. But in the midst of all of that growth and blessings, he experienced the death of three people. The nurse of Rebecca, who was his nanny, Rebecca, and his father. And then, on top of all of that, he has this absolutely abominable, hideous sin of his son who rebelled against him. As a matter of fact, the son committed adultery with one of his wives, but in that day, that was a sign that he was trying to take the place of his father. That's one of the ways you demonstrated the superiority of another man as you went to bed with his wife. So for your son to do that. So all in the course of 29 verses, we have all of that. We have great blessing and yet great trouble that causes grief. So, let me conclude by making a couple of observations. Real simple. Life is filled with funerals and failures. 
I had somebody ask me this week, and the week is not even half, just about halfway over, why did God let you have a spinal cord injury? And I said, I don't know. I know that there's been some great blessing come out of it. But what I know is that Job says, life is full of trouble as the sparks fly upward, right? And Christians are not exempt. Christians get sick. Christians die. Christians have trouble. Christians sin. None of us are perfect. So one of the things you just need to know is life is filled with failures and funerals. We have three funerals in this one chapter. That's just a fact of life. So write that down. You're going to face failure and you're going to face funerals. It's the way it is. I preached a sermon once titled Five Principles. And I said, these are the five principles I live by. Remember what the first one was? You don't even remember me preaching that sermon. Remember what the first one was? You don't remember? Reality. You need to just look at reality. Don't kid yourself. Sometimes you just need to look at the situation and you need to say, this is bad. You say that at a funeral. This is bad. Second point. Life is filled with failures and funerals, but through it all, God is faithful. God is faithful. Matter of fact, one of the things that, that just bleeds through these verses is how God is faithful to keep his promise and to keep answering prayer and to keep blessing Jacob. I pointed them out as we went through the passage. God, but the big part, a big part of the passage is God repeating the promises he made to Abraham and Isaac so that God's faithfulness does not depend on what we do or do not do. God's faithfulness depends on what he promises. And one of the things you can put in there is God promised us eternal life. His son, Jesus, died for us and arose from the dead. And God gives us a promise that if we trust his son, we are given the gift of eternal life. I, had this, I have this discussion all the time. I get asked this question all the time. It's come up in the last week, this time in a phone conversation. And a fellow said to me, I have people say to me, but what if you, and I said, my going to heaven doesn't depend on what I do, right? What does it depend on? What Jesus did, right? So it doesn't depend on what I do, it depends on what Jesus did, and it doesn't depend on what I don't do. It all depends on what Jesus did. And here's the bottom line. And God is faithful to his promise. So he promised us eternal life. And no matter what 
goes on in our lives, God keeps his promise. So we experience failure, but God is faithful. Somebody has said in that chapter, this chapter, there were sad deaths that were marked the end of an era, but the promises continued. There was sin that ruined an inheritance. That's, we'll get to that later. But it could not nullify the obvious blessing of God. And there were forgotten vows. But God ensured that they would be kept. And that when they were kept, he confirmed his promise. God blesses undeserving people. If that weren't the case, none of us would get blessed. Because God blesses undeserving people. All right, you with me so far? What have I said? Life is full of failure and funerals. God is faithful. Is all that true? So when things come hitting you, bad things, like the death of someone you love dearly, like someone killing adultery with your wife, like another death hitting you, and a third. What you have to remember is God is faithful and none of this affects the promises of God. Not even your own failure, not funerals. God is faithful. So, one last point. Although life is filled with funerals and failures, we must remember that God is faithful and we need to be faithful to God. I think that's the implication of what is here. And in a sense, it's illustrated by Jacob. He made a vow to come back to Bethel. God watched over him, protected him, provided for him, and when he got back, God says, oh, by the way, let's go back to Bethel, remember? Oh, yeah. So one of the other lessons of this chapter is that Jacob was faithful to keep his promise to the Lord. So let me conclude by quoting someone that I think has put his finger on the pulse of this passage and on the pulse of what we need to do. This commentator said, God continually calls each generation of believers to rekindle their faith, to revitalize it as if they were in the greatest of spiritual struggles, for they are, and dare not let down. Jacob, us, we're in a spiritual struggle. And life hits us hard. So we dare not let down. God is faithful to us, and it should motivate us to be faithful to him. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Sometimes we tend to lose sight of that. But thank you for it. 
Thank you for your promises to us that change not. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Father, help us to be faithful to you as you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.